Welcome to the Not A Mommy Yet podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Fay. I started the Not A Mommy Yet blog and this podcast because I've always known I want to be a parent one day, and you might be listening because you feel the same. You may have also heard people with kids say things like, I wish I had known this before I had kids, or I wish I had done that. Hearing those comments made me think about the parts of my life I want to spend more time focusing on before I have kids in ways that will benefit me as a parent. So I started a list of people who can teach me about health, money, relationships, psychology, and more, and started interviewing them, and this podcast was born. Whether you plan to have kids or not, I think you'll find something interesting in this podcast for you. I hope you enjoy, subscribe, and maybe even share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm in private practice. Um, I'm from LA originally, uh, actually born at Cedar Sinai. Um, I went to Berkeley undergrad and University of Michigan for medical school. I spent about six winters in the Midwest and decided that my blood never thickened and it was too cold for me and I came back and uh, finished my residency at Cedar Sinai and been in private practice for 12 years. Um, Within my practice, um, I'm about 50-50 OB in gynecology, and within my obstetric practice, I would say about 70% of my patients are high risk in one form or another. Um, and uh, I think doctors like Dr. Alexander tend to know I'm comfortable managing high risk patients, so I tend to get referrals from, from uh, people, so I, I see a lot of this. I'm Carolyn Alexander, born and raised in LA, and uh, I have my mom delivered me at UCLA Hospital, but anyway, I've worked at Cedars for eight years, and I've been in private practice for five years. I went to UCLA for medical school and then lived in Baltimore for seven years. I also was very cold there for many years. I never bought snow boots, but I, I tried. But, um, and uh, I enjoyed training on the East Coast. And then I enjoyed teaching at, at Cedars, the residents and medical students. Um, right now, I think most of my patients are either trying to get pregnant or have an issue getting pregnant or are trying to freeze eggs for the future. I still do see young girls who are skipping their periods too, who their pediatrician or gynecologist don't, like it's a complicated issue. And so I have to tackle the hormones of the pituitary gland, which is the master gland of hormones, and um, kind of dive into that with some, some young girls. And then sometimes we see young women who don't get their periods and they actually are born with a vagina or no uterus and different things like that. So it's very delicate in discussing those issues with people. Um, I always tell people your period is your fifth vital sign. So unless you're on birth control pills, which is okay to skip your period, it's really, really important to have your period every month because um, skipping them even in a thin patient can be an increased risk for uterine cancer especially in women with polycystic ovary syndrome. So it's really important to get your period every month. And otherwise, I love hiking and reading. (laughs) 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 Any questions for us? How do you balance the two 
Um, well, it's it, it's the master gland, of, and, and it controls us mostly. But um, we, I have a few tricks up my sleeve, especially if young women are exercising a lot and not getting their period. That's a common thing you see. I, it's hard for me as a doctor to tell someone not to exercise. I always feel like, oh, how can I tell someone not to? That's so weird because we're trying to get so many people to exercise. But there are some people where just the pounding of running on their feet, the system thinks they're running from something, so it shuts down the, the hormones to make your menstrual cycle regular. So um, we occasionally have to say, cut your regimen in half. That's some way I tell them. It's hard for me to quantify what they're doing. Right. And then a lot of our LA, especially those are women, are really, really thin. So I encourage them to add more nuts in their diet and more kind of of the fatty foods and sometimes the pituitary is like, ooh, there's better nutrition now and then the periods strike back again. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's sure. how we do it. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I was going to say Oh, whoever was first. Um, no, I wanted to ask, so the pituitary gland is like very in tune with you need your period or not. <clears throat> so what are those hormones that you're kind of yeah. 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 talking about? That's so interesting, F I didn't know. It's called FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, mm -hmm. and a follicle's in your ovaries. We each have two ovaries, and in the ovaries have little follicles. Am I talking about it? Oh, okay. sorry. Oh, and um, each of the follicles has a microscopic egg inside. And we're born with a certain number of follicles that we're born with, and as time marches on, the follicles start to go down. But each month, because the pituitary tells the ovary, okay, please, please ovulate, so it sends down the, the hormone, then the system's like, okay, I'm ready to ovulate. So around day 14, people ovulate with another hormone from the pituitary called LH, which does a peak, and that causes the egg to rupture and come out of the follicle. Oh, yes. yes. And then the other hormones from your pituitary make you breastfeed when you're ready to, after having a baby, it's called prolactin. Mm -hmm. And then another one is thyroid, which is like controls your metabolism. Thank you. Sure. So, that I was thinking of when you were saying like the running aspect, like the cardio of working out and trip out your, your gland. If it was a different sort of stimulus, like Pilates, for instance, or something that's a little less aggressive, would that still be like an sure. option? Or would you just like do more of the that? So, um, the way I approach and the way I counsel my patients is. Uh, when your body's under stress, and that stress could be physical stress from the exercise that you're doing, it could be um, stress because of the number of calories that you're eating, um, emotional stress, um, all of these things raise cortisol levels in your body. And your body is designed to have this kind of fight or flight response. And it's kind of an evolutionary thing, and if your body's under stress, your body thinks, okay, I need to outrun this bear. And it starts conserving resources. And typically the first resource that tends to shut down is the reproductive system, because your body's like, oh, if 
I have limited resources, I'm not getting enough calories, I'm expending too many calories, I don't want to inadvertently get pregnant and have to expend that calorie and that energy on growing another person. So stress will decrease fertility because it's basically causing your body to shut down the reproductive system. And where that balance is for any one individual is different. I have patients who are marathon runners and they're vegan and they have regular monthly periods and have no problems getting pregnant and I have other patients who run three times a week and they don't get their period. And you hear the stories of the you know, Olympic athletes, um, elite athletes that are not getting their period and it's typically they're out of balance in terms of the calories that they're taking in versus what their body set point needs in order to uh, continue a reproductive system functioning properly. And acupuncture helps a lot too, not when you said pituitary also. Um, sometimes we use non-Western medicine strategies while in meditation to set the cortisol down a little bit for people. Do we um, recommend diet-wise in order to um, balance the gut? Because isn't the our pituitary and the gut-brain access really connected? every two to three hours eating something with the protein and then um, I usually try even though intermittent fasting is a big hot topic and it helps me sometimes lose mm -hmm. weight and stuff like that I don't know if someone's trying to get pregnant or keep their periods regular if the intermittent fasting is like perfect mm -hmm. for everybody but it depends on the different metabolism so. I guess depends on what the goal is I mean, if your goal is to lose weight, there's a bunch of modalities to do that and decreasing your caloric intake um, and increasing your energy expenditure is going to improve the weight loss. Is that necessarily the best for fertility? Again, that's kind of different for person. So how do you find your like, healthy balance? <clears throat> so for fertility speaking of which, like, okay, how do you find like what level of fat that you should be at versus your muscles and Type of weight that you should have because I mean today there's so many um, perspectives on like you know being skinny and like how that is and it like looks beautiful but like really it's like being in a healthy balance is what's beautiful inside and out so it's like how do you find that or what do you take in to like measure that for yourself? Well yeah I, I agree with Carolyn in if somebody's not getting a regular period then whatever it is that they're doing is triggering a level of stress on their body that is shutting down the reproductive system. So um, I use that as at least my first line. If somebody's coming to me and they're like, oh, you, they're an actor or a model or they're training for ice skating or whatever, whatever it is that they're working on, if they're still getting a regular period and they're feeling good, then assuming that they're not getting a regular period because they're on birth control pills, then that seems to be a healthy place for them to be. If they're training so hard that they're skipping their period, then that's concerning me that the the level of stress that their body appears to be under is more significant than what they're meant to be appreciating. Yeah. And, and I even see it under mental stress. I, I call it the LSAT effect. I feel like every patient of mine who's studying for the LSAT stops their period for about three months. And they're all in my office like, oh my God, what's happening? Am I pregnant? What's wrong with me? And they all seem to get their period back once they finish the test. So um, there's, uh, even, even if it's just a mental stress, it's, it, there's no change in their diet, or, or maybe there's a change in their diet and exercise in that scenario, but not to the extent that they're, they're under the mental stress that they're under about an upcoming test. Right. Wow. So, 
Um, can you can your body go through the ovulation symptoms without releasing an egg? Because I've been doing ovulation tests, and you know my body tells you when you're ovulating. Like I feel like I know because you get you know the mucus stuff, but the kit is saying nothing. The so, kid is like only an ovulation. 80% of the time, so there's a 20% of people who do ovulate, and the urine LH kit wasn't detected. Okay. But a blood progesterone level around day 20 to 25 can really prove if the egg popped out of the follicle um, as like a real McCoy proof. Plus, if you get a full flow period, usually there was an ovulation at some point. Um, some women with polycystic ovary syndrome get regular periods, but the egg tries so hard to come out of the shell that it never gets to pop out. And so that um, can, they can feel it or, and not necessarily always And what would be, because I always look and it says like, you know, uh, 12 to 14 days after your first your first period, the day of your first period, would it ever be before? Sometimes. So you always ovulate exactly two weeks before your next period. Okay. So in somebody who has that classic textbook, which is actually very rare, 28 day cycle, they're ovulating on day 14. If you have a 30 day cycle, you're actually ovulating on day 16. If you have a 26 day cycle, you're ovulating on day 12. If your cycle varies from month to month, when you ovulate is actually varying from month to month and harder to predict. So go with what my body's saying and not the kit. <laughs> or you can ask some gynecologist if you have to do a blood test. That would be real. Sometimes we do three months in a row to see. If your over-the-counter ovulation predictor kits are not confirming ovulation and you're trying to get pregnant, you should go into your doctor to see whether or not that's true or not. Sorry, I have one more question. Um, what if you, I, I had a miscarriage in April and it was 13 weeks. So would that have any effect on, like, because I got my cycle back probably the last two months, I guess, with that if there weren't any complications from the miscarriage, once your cycle returns normally, it shouldn't have any bearing on your subsequent pregnancies. Although the reason for the miscarriage, if it was because there's a problem with your uterus, you have a polyp or a fibroid, then again, it's not going to affect ovulation, but it could affect future pregnancies and making sure that there wasn't another reason that that can be evaluated or fixed so that you don't have another problem the same the same way in the next pregnancy. And I'm sorry for that. And it's very common. That was the second one in a row. Usually from our fertility world, if it's too it's important to get the checkup for five main causes of that. So it'd be good to get a checkup. I have, a question. I have like three questions, but I'm gonna do a little like backtrack. So like by 2010, I was 23 and I had a 40 pound ovarian cyst, and it was removed alongside with my left ovary. Um, and my doctor back then, I don't have, uh, I, I've changed, uh, sorry, I've changed um, insurances. So I'm like now with Kaiser, I have like a blue shield and I had my choice. 
Um, and this doctor, he was the one who did the surgery and saved my life. He had me on this plan of being on Lolo Western feet. And uh, every year we would do like a vaginal ultrasound just to make sure it was, everything was good. And so like sort of been like a year and a half and I don't have him anymore and I don't have someone that I can trust in Kaiser. And they put, they switched me to the Western feet. I don't know if there's like a difference. Uh, if I, am I on the right path? I ha, um, should I continue what he was suggesting and doing it like an ultrasound every year, at least once a year? And I don't know if that's like, the same thing as because it's it was Lola Western and now it's just low Lorestrin. And I'm sorry, I'm confused. It's just like it's 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 slightly different. And I try to stick with whatever he was doing, but I don't know if there's a difference. And yeah, and if I ever wanted to get pregnant, can I just like get off of it? So in terms of birth control pills, there's um, when you're talking about the dose of birth control pills, you're typically talking about the dose of estrogen. Um, and the range, kind of a higher estrogen dose pill would be a 35 microgram pill. The lowest estrogen containing pill on the market is a 10 microgram pill, which is low, low estrogen. It's actually the only pill on the market that is a 10 microgram pill. Most of the general low dose birth control pills are about 20 microgram pills, so it's between 20 and like 35. Um, so when you're talking about the dose of birth control pills, that's is the estrogen component you're typically talking about. The progesterone component, there's about a dozen different progesterones on the market. And the, the difference that you're asking between low, low estrogen and low estrogen, low, low is a 10 microgram pill, low estrogen is a 20 microgram pill. The progesterone component is probably the same between the two. Um, in terms of which pill to be on, there's really not one that's better or worse. It's a matter of how you feel on it. If you feel the same, there's no real issue between the two. Um, lots of people like the idea of being on a lower dose hormone pill. For some women, the low low estrogen is actually too low and they end up having a lot of spotting because it's not stabilizing their bleeding well enough. Um, so I end up switching lots of patients from low low to low estrogen. Um, if you otherwise feel fine on it, I don't have any reason that it would be dangerous or harmful for you to continue the, the 20 microgram pill. And when you're ready to get pregnant, you stop the pill and see how your body does. If you've been on it for like a decade or more, sometimes it can take your body between three and six months for your natural cycle to kind of kick back in to get back to your underlying cycle. It is possible you can get pregnant that first month. It is also possible it may take you a few cycles before your natural underlying rhythm kicks back in. But birth control pills aren't gonna prevent you from being able to get pregnant in the long term, um, regardless of how much time that you're on them. If you were something that was gonna have a regular cycle or have a problem, the birth control pills aren't going to help it or fix it. It may be masking it in the time that you're on it. That's it, sorry. Um, so like, in, I, I was like, in, a, in my thought, in my head, how he was telling us, to be honest, I feel like I have to be on it for life. And whenever I want to get pregnant, just get off of it. I don't know if that was like a, a reasoning because of, of the cyst or something, or something coming back. Well, it does hopefully prevent cysts, but it depends on the pathology of the cyst too. Okay. Like there's different types of cysts, mm -hmm. and some cysts suppress with the birth control pill. Mm -hmm. So it kind of depends which type of cyst. Um, and I think the low estrogen is actually a good idea because it also can protect from cysts 
maybe even better than the low low estrogen, so that could be a good thing. I'm a believer in an ultrasound every year, but I mean, we're used to doing ultrasounds every day all the time on people, and there isn't like a scientific thing that means you have to do it, but it couldn't hurt to do an ultrasound, because you, your right ovary is really precious right now, so we have to keep it safe, and so it would have been better to have caught a problem like when it's small versus I bigger. didn't even know. It's like I thought it was like fat. It was weird. I, I legit because it feels like flesh. And I it was just one day where I was like, I thought it was constipated, and you know, it was like all the way in the world, and it was just like all water. And and without if I wasn't on birth control, it wouldn't have ru like ruptured on its own. Like they just go crazy. If, if it had rupture in, in somebody that has a history of recurrent rupture and cysts, birth control pills suppress ovulation. So in theory, they're going to minimize the likelihood that you're going to make a cyst that becomes big enough that ruptures and becomes painful. So, you know, in my patients who have a history of rupture and cysts, or certainly in my patients who have a history of needing surgery because of a, of a cyst issue, I would prefer to keep them suppressed until they're ready to start getting pregnant so that they don't end up in that recurrent situation yet. But I don't have a medical reason to say, oh, you have to be on it until you want to get pregnant. Going off of it just may put you at risk for another rupture cyst. Yeah. And then there's a blood test called AMH that's in important as an egg supply number. Mm -hmm. And it's not a perfect test because sometimes when you're on a birth control pill for a while, it can be fake abnormal, but at least it's like a tool that we use as the fertility side of things to keep a little bird's eye view of the good ovary that it's still strong and has good eggs. But it's called AMH. Oh my gosh, do you suggest, I'm like, do you suggest that I like talk to like a doctor, find a doctor and see about that plan? Is that like being on birth control for life is kind of like, you know, I don't know, like a lifetime center. I mean, you should definitely have a doctor that you yeah. talk to that you can kind of go over what your goals are and what your plans are and the reasons that you're on it. If you're on it for contraception or you're simply on it to prevent ovarian cysts and, and kind of what your periods are like. There are benefits to being on birth control yeah. pill in the long term. If you're on birth control pills for more than 10 years, you actually lower your risk of ovary cancer by 50%. You lower your risk of uterine cancer by 40%. There's some data that's coming out that suggests it actually may also be lowering your risk of colon cancer, although that's still new and questionable. Um, the thing that people talk about a lot is the risk of breast cancer. There are some studies that suggest that your breast cancer risk may be a little bit higher if you're on birth control pills. There are other studies that say the risk is actually lower. Currently, based on the data we have, if you take all of the information that we have together, it's really neither up nor down on the breast cancer risk. Okay. Thank you. I was just going to ask about hormonal contraception. Do you find more patients starting to shy away from like just jumping on the birth control bandwagon and trying to balance their hormones maybe more naturally or through lifestyle habits? Or do you feel it's kind of the same and, and women still feel pretty comfortable being? prescribe birth control, hormonal birth control? Um, for contraception mm -hmm. or for reasons of controlling the period? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess now I feel like it's becoming a little bit more popular to figure out ways to balance their hormones so their periods become more regular without the use of birth control or, or I don't know, birth control or hormonal 
contraception not interchangeable? Well, so we can, there are, there's IUDs that have hormones, mm -hmm. so you can have a hormonal IUD that's not an oral contraceptive pill. So, right. um, and again, if you're, if you're having really weird, irregular, horrible, painful periods and terrible PMS and, and terrible symptoms and you're taking birth control pill to improve your periods, that's kind of a, a one approach or goal. If we're talking about simply just for use of contraception, I would say, I'm seeing a little bit of a trend more towards IUDs rather than oral contraceptive pills, mm -hmm. but I think it has more to do with lifestyle choice and what their periods are like on it as opposed to being as concerned about balancing their hormones from a straight gynecology standpoint. Yeah, yeah. And for young girls, if they're not finished with breast development, if we're giving them birth, like the higher dose estrogen birth control pills, and the final maturation of the breast development can be altered. And so that affects, so when I see like young girls, 12, 13, 14, and they're not done with breast development, it's, unless they're really you know, sexually active and they really need contraception, then I have a, a pros and cons list with them. And usually the mom's kind of there. There's a whole group of people to talk to, but um, kind of go with the pros and cons with them. Ask, I thank you for being here. Brilliant questions. Um, I want to talk a little bit about balancing hormones because I'm at a place right now I don't know exactly what is happening. A lot of life changes and a lot of trauma. I work in tech during the day. I want to start addressing what's going on with my body. My, I don't want to get into all my symptoms, but I feel a little lost in my research. Like. How do I feel empowered once I find a doctor? That's another thing I need to do. Once I find a doctor that I'm comfortable with, how do I feel empowered to ask the right questions and to make sure I'm getting the right treatment to sort of investigate what is potentially going on? I really want to walk into the room and feel empowered. And I've had some pretty not great gynecological experiences, so I'm trying to flip that. So what would you recommend resource-wise or... Um, I'm sorry, you've had negative experiences that always upsets me too. But I've had positive ones too. Oh, so okay. I've had an amazing doctor in New York that's telling you about she's a light. So it's, I'm empowered to find a really good doctor. So I'm going to take the time to do that. Um, so coming with a list of symptoms and it's also helpful, you know, for a patient coming to me, to have a sense of what their cycle has been like for the last few months. Like, one off cycle happens to all of us, not in frequency. But um, if your cycle has really been off for an extended period of time, um, patients that come to me with a calendar and, you know, when do their symptoms start in their cycle? Um, what symptoms are they having? Are they happening every cycle? Are they getting regular periods? Um, but somebody like, oh, my periods are weird. That doesn't help me a lot because your definition of weird may be different than my yeah, definition no, of weird. So, so knowing those. what the symptoms are, um, and also having a doctor that's going to look at the big picture because, as I mentioned, stress, lifestyle choices are going to impact what happens with your cycle. If you are under a tremendous amount of personal stress, 
It could be the stress, the emotion, if mood disorders, all of those things are going to potentially impact your reproductive system. Or what if you're living under a state of heightened stress and you're now, that's where I really am. I'm, yes. I'm gonna exhale. I'm sorry. I'm going to exhale. Okay. Then, then my first approach would be kind of figuring out what's going on with your cycle. So I think there's an underlying gynecologic issue. And finding out what your goals are in terms of your health. Is your goal to have a regular period? Is your goal to prevent contraception? Is your goal to have um, sex that's not painful? Is your goal to avoid menopausal symptoms? Is your goal to get pregnant? because my approach to what I may recommend is going to differ based on what your goals are. So figuring out what you want for your health is, is helpful to me to kind of guide what the best way to get you there is gonna be. Um, and sometimes my advice is somebody who is under tremendous stress, like my, my patients are studying for the bar exam. They, they come in and, and I'm like, you know, let's run some tests and kind of rule out some stuff. But I suspect when the stress level gets better, you may actually start feeling better just from fixing the extrinsic issue that is affecting you. Um, so seeing what the cycles are so I can tell if there's some kind of pattern that would suggest a particular issue that I should be investigating, and what is your goal? Those are the two things that are helpful for a patient to come in with. Um, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, I don't want hormones, but I have these horrible periods and I'm bleeding for, you know, two weeks every month and I don't want to get pregnant and I have this horrible PMS and ready to jump off every three days before my period every month, <laughs> it's like, okay, tell me what it is that you want me to help you with so I can make suggestions. Yeah. That's helpful. But approaching it like your doctor is your partner in health. And I, I would like to think most of us approach patients in that way. That's my approach. Um, so finding finding your doctor as your as being on your team in helping you achieve the goals you're trying to achieve. Is there a resource for us to look for? I don't even know what I would call it, like vetted gynecologists or uh, uh, I mean, I don't. Um, I know I can search I'm not going to suggest Yelp because no, I'm not a there's, there's some lacking information on Yelp that uh, I don't know that I, I would know where his mouth is good, but then you're like, what insurance do you have? And then it's complicated. So. That's, a, that's a hard question to answer. There's no like list of this doctor is good and this doctor is not good. And again, a lot of it is really a personality thing. Like, I have patients that come to me where my approach is not the right approach to them. Uh, I, I am. My goal is to help my patients achieve what their goals are, assuming that that I don't think they're doing anything that's really dangerous for themselves. And I'll tell them my approach. You know, I I am pro vaccine, and it's not something that I hide in any way, and I promote. And ultimately, my patients, I tell them, look, I recommend these things. This is why I recommend them. This is the data that supports why I recommend them. But ultimately, it's your choice whether or not you get your flu shot. I strongly encourage you to get it. But I'm not going to you know, hold you down and inject you with things without your permission. That's called assault and battery. I don't want to go to jail. Um, but if you don't want to hear your doctor promoting vaccines, then I'm probably not the right doctor for you. Mm -hmm. 
if somebody's coming in and they want a you know a, a homework that's unmedicated and unmonitored, I'm probably not the right doctor for them. So it some it and I tell this to my patients who are also looking for therapists. Like sometimes you need to shop around a little bit and find the person who is the right fit for you. And really, the doctors may not be the right fit for you. Yeah. Part of that question, like it's kind of hard. Like see, with like I have a Kaiser. Um, I have to actually like do a whole thing and like set them up and then they're now their official doctor and then I try them out But it's like so like isn't there a way to just like talk to them to see if you can have like a relationship Doctor patient because it's just like we'll save a lot of time I don't know. I, know. Um, I, I, mean, I, I can answer that question in the I'm the patient approach <laughs> or I'm the doctor approach and um, I, I don't want to get on my soapbox about how much I hate insurance companies. Um, I could, but I, I'm going to try not to today. Um, the issue with that is um, if the doctor's giving you advice, they're establishing a doctor-patient relationship. And most doctors are not willing to do that with somebody that they haven't met in person and they don't know your whole history. Um, the other issue is doctors get paid based on their time. and. You know, a phone call to chat about, you know, am I a good fit for you is time that they're not seeing a patient who is going to help them pay the light bill and the phone bill and their kids' preschool bill and all of those things. I totally understand. So um, I, I wish I had, a, in all honesty, a better answer for you. I think insurance companies are like organized crime. It's the mafia. I hate them. Um, and they're, I don't know the right answer for a health system that's better. I don't think what we have is good, but it can sometimes be a little bit of a struggle to find it's the right person for you. So far, the only one that I don't have them anymore. Like, I legit cried when I didn't. I'm like, my insurance, no. But the one who did my surgery and everything that saved my life, Dr. Sean Kasari, um, I love him. But um, I wish I had that relationship with every like doctor. Like, let me just like be you know straight up. Tell me, don't like sugarcoat it. Let's have a let's have a plan. But, you know, I love that. And it's just hard to find that because it's just like it's, it's hard. But it, you know, I feel like, I don't feel like it's impossible. But just have to like be vocal about it. I guess. Yes. Okay, so birth control options, um, not on a oral contraceptive because I just didn't like how it made me feel, and I don't really want to make me because I just know I'm a freak and will be like every just like kind of way I feel it, like I just know myself. What are the options outside of that first thing that you can count on that's not a problem? There are no good options. Um, if you're looking at reversible contraception, um, the best options out there are IEDs. The failure rate is actually the same as having your tubes tied, which is 1 in 500. Okay. Um, the failure rate for perfect use of an oral contraceptive pill is 1 in 100. With typical use, it's about 6 in 100. Um, the, the patch and the ring are equivalent to oral contraceptive pills. There's an arm implant and there's the progesterone shot, which will get you closer to the IUD failure rate, but there are hormones that, that have their own set of side effects that you may or may not find tolerable. Um, condoms have about a 6 to 18% failure rate, depending on how well they're used. Um, 
the rhythm method, depending on the study, has a 28% failure rate. Um, so there are not a lot of good options. So when you say like with monitors, like how well they're used, like what do you mean by that? Like, so if they're put on before there's any sexual contact of any kind, if they're used every single time, if they're used properly, meaning that you pinch the tip and it's rolled on so there's space at the end to collect the semen that the man ejaculates, um, making sure that they're used with a water-based lubricant as opposed to an oil-based lubricant. Oil-based lubricants will cause latex to break. Um, so uh, used with spermicide improves um, protection rates, um, pregnancy rates. So and used every single time and before there's any contact. So like putting it on right before a man is going to ejaculate, not helping you. Most men actually release a little bit of fluid that they don't feel that could be microscopic that they can't see that has sperm in it. And sperm can live inside a woman's reproductive tract for up to five days. So you could have withdrawal sex five days before you ovulate and still get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Is that the same for a female condom or the stats same order? So typically the female condoms are polyurethane, they're not latex. So the risk of rupture with um, with the Oil-based lubricants is not as great. I still recommend my patients opt for the water-based lubricants. I still encourage spermicidal use, and again, um, inserting it before there's any contact. I'm not sure if this is a myth or not, but can sperm live, like stay alive in water? <laughs> I mean, like if you were to have sex, like, 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 a sh like a shower or a bath or even a pool or whatever, does that, is this like the chemicals or I mean, not that we are aware of, actually, but yeah. Wait, so it's still I mean, active. I don't think it can really I mean, if you're having penetrative sex in a jacuzzi, and ejaculation happens inside, inside the body, yeah. yes, you can still get pregnant. If he ejaculates into the water, your odds of pregnancy are probably a whole lot lower. Sure. <laughs> but there might be more. I can't, I can't tell sure. you with 100% sure that it's impossible, but, but it's less likely. Less I mean, I mean, same, mm -hmm. like, if but, but again, yeah. if the cup is released when he's inside you, yeah, then, then yes, so that is still a risk. Um, back to the period thing, I don't know if this is even a question, but um, you were saying that you can tell a lot by if you're not on birth control, if you miss a period or a period strange or something. If you've been on birth control, like this, I've been on the same birth control for like 11 years and I've just like never, I don't know, thought anything of it. Um, should, like, is it masking something or should I like? That's for the AMH test. I don't know your age or anything, but um, the, that blood test, the AMH, might just give you a clue to your egg supply. Um, as I use it as a tool, it's not a perfect test, but yeah. um, sometimes that helps us keep an eye. And then if you have a reason for an ultrasound, when we look at the ovaries, we see the little follicles on the ovaries, and we expect to see five to 10 on each ovary. So let's say we see 10 and 10, we know, yeah, your system's a go. So hopefully when you stop the pill, everything hopefully will go back to 
And then I think it's interesting when people come in and say, I've been on the pill for 10 years, and I came off it and I didn't get my period. I go, but before you started the pill, were you regular? Oh, no, I wasn't regular. But it's like, give me go back to what it was two yeah. days before you went on the pill. So give you a regular cycle while you're on it, but if there was an underlying issue, it's not fixing that. And when you come off the pill, that underlying issue still exists. Yeah. Like, could you have a subclinical thyroid problem? You don't really have any significant symptoms, but your thyroid is a little off, and if you were not on birth control pills, your period might be irregular and less frequent, that would cause us to investigate that. Could that be masked if you're on the pill for a long time? Yes, possible, but if it's not really causing other symptoms that are significantly adversely affecting you, does it require a workup? Also for, like, so then for freezing eggs, like it's not really like age-based or anything, it's like person to person, just whatever's going on with you. We tend to see women try to freeze eggs a little too late. It's actually better before 35, but then when like a 26-year-old comes in, if everything looks really good, I tell her, you have a little breathing time, you can kind of think about it. Sometimes we look at the trend of their hormones, so come back in six months and reevaluate. Um, because it's it's kind of controversial at the young age whether egg freezing is right, but then we sometimes see 23, 24 year olds where they've had um, a genetic problem that they didn't realize. It's called fragile X, and that puts them at a really big risk for early menopause. But usually, a mom or grandma or an aunt had an early menopause, and they're like thanking us so much that we froze their eggs because by the time they meet the right person and get married then they don't have any more eggs, but they have the egg froze. So there's certain case-by-case case situations where it's like, yeah, a young person may freeze their eggs. It's not random that we're just freezing eggs yeah. for a particular cause. Yeah. How about um, sperm? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a really big uh, topic because um, certain cognitive and developmental things in schizophrenia starts to rise as men cross 50. So we're actually starting to encourage men who haven't had their family yet or they're not sure what the future is around age 45 to think about freezing sperm. How does that work? The whole, sorry, I'm going to push you next. It's already too. How does that work, the whole freezing egg? Like, like, do you rent rooms? How does it monthly? Like, uh, how does this well, we, we have a facility where we, it's a special lab with different lighting and different air vents. It's like very sterile. And um, when the eggs come out through a small procedure through the vagina after two weeks of medicine, um, they're flash frozen in a like a glass-like state. It's called vitrification, and then the eggs are stored. It, for us, it's in our facility, but some places it's in a, a special facility. And we used to say, please use them within five to eight years, but um, because Italy only is allowed to freeze sperm eggs um, and sperm separately, they're not allowed to freeze embryos. It's been happening since the eighties. So they have a lot of long-term safety data on the eggs and thawing them, and so we're noticing that you can leave them frozen for much longer than we used to think. Can we um, like test sperm out to see like if it's like a healthy sperm or like what kind of like there's a semen analysis and they look at for numbers, the volume, the concentration, motility, and the morphology. Mm -hmm. 
And from that, um, every 72 days, men make new sperm. So let's say it looked unusual and they had a fever or something recently or whatever, it can be an unusual number, but then we can recheck it. But there's something called a semen analysis. Okay. Thank you. Um, my sperm question is if I'm, I'm obviously trying to get pregnant, and um, does it matter if after we have sex, if I'm, I'm like, Julian or in the Big Lebowski, I've got my legs up, you know, on the wall. I mean, does it matter if I, do, should I sit there for like 15 minutes? I mean, like, does that what matter? What I tell people is at the moment of ovulation, like if, because we sometimes give medicine to make it ovulate, I say we 10 minutes and then run and pee because we don't need to get a urinary tract infection. But otherwise, you don't have to because it actually, within 80 seconds, it's in gone up, so it's okay. not like it's going to fall out, or it feels like it is, right. but the yeah. sperm themselves wiggle up. Okay. Yeah. So do you recommend an embryo over egg It depends on the person's circumstances and their age, because like sometimes we see patients who froze with a partner who wasn't like for sure mm -hmm. certain about the yeah. situation, and we're not allowed to use those embryos in the future. And if she goes into menopause, then it's a little tricky because those are her only biological chances. Gosh, so I all tend to be equal. An embryo is much stronger than an egg. And then the other question is you said like 35 is too late, 23 is too young. What is the <laughs> ideal age for freezing eggs? Yeah, I think there's not a perfect answer. It's an individual case by case circumstance. So, because I was on some other whatever discussion group and it was really big on numbers. I try to not make a 27 or 31 year old get worried because she could get pregnant and try naturally, right? Yeah. So I, I don't put it like a specific number. It's really the ultrasound, the blood tests, and their their family history and like circumstances too. So is it true that but someone told me I don't know if this is true, like I'm I'm 28, so is that oh between you know however fertile you are now at 28 it's not going to change that much by the time you're 30. Like if I'm not fertile now, I'm not going to be fertile by the time I'm 30. If I'm really fertile now, it might be the time I'm 30. So does it change a lot between those ages? I've seen it change pretty impressively at any age. And it's also, a, I, I forgot to say, but if someone, let's say in their early 20s, smoked a lot, through college or whatever it was, that also puts our egg quantity to go down quicker than women who didn't smoke. So there's a lot of little factors that play a role in the discussion when you talk to people about it. Yeah. Would it be like dangerous to get pregnant in 40? Is it possible? Or like I had my well, our average age of patients we see is 39.9. So we're used to seeing mostly 40s and a lot of, you know what I mean? So we see, but in like a lot of them, and even for myself, like I wish I had some eggs because my person would want more kids in mid-40s and don't have it. You know, so it's interesting to think about it because I help people all day long for, talk about freezing eggs, but I don't push it too hard. I have them make their own decision. Um, but so I think it's interesting, you know, but we, women are, we can conceive even with a frozen embryo that we froze many years before into our 50s. It's not 100% as perfect safe as when we were 25, but it's still a possibility. I feel like I want to do that. I just feel like financially that might not even be an option. 
but like if I were to be natural, then like I wonder if like that would be dangerous. Like ideally, it would be forced. There was like this like pressure against like OBGYNs that I was with. They're like, when are you get pregnant? You know, already. I'm like, no. So within my practice, I would say at least 15% of my currently pregnant patients are 40 or above. I have a few who are 43, 44 with spontaneous pregnancies, although the majority of my patients who are you know, above 43 end up having trouble and need some help. Um, we do know that pregnancies in women who are over the age of 35 um, have a higher risk of complications associated with their pregnancy. So there's this, um, so the medical term for being 35 or over when you're having a baby is called advanced maternal age. Among social media, they're called geriatric pregnancies. <laughs> I personally don't like that term because I didn't have a geriatric pregnancy, so I, I prefer the advanced maternal age uh, designation about it. Um, but statistically, women who are 35 or over who are pregnant are at higher risk for having high blood pressure issues or preeclampsia. They're at higher risk of developing gestational diabetes. They're going to be at higher risk of having a chromosomally abnormal pregnancy and miscarrying. They're at higher risk of ending up with a C-section. They're at higher risk of may, having... Excuse me, ma'am. May I ask <laughs> what is higher risk mean? 5%, 20 30 That's a great question. It depends on the individual condition, and it also depends on the age. So the risk, it's it's a spectrum, and the risk at 35 is probably going to be less than the risk at 40, and the factors that also play into that is how healthy was mom when she got pregnant? Does she have a strong family history of diabetes? Was she overweight? Is she a smoker? All of those things are going to factor into the equation. But statistically, the numbers of each of those go up. Um, it doesn't mean that somebody who's 37 or 38 or 39 or 41 is going to develop any of those issues when they get pregnant. But statistically, the odds are higher that one of those things is going to come up. So uh, that's not to in any way discourage anybody from getting pregnant at that age, and, and um, I would say at least 70% of my currently pregnant patients are 35 or above that are pregnant. Um, but knowing that the odds are higher in each of those categories, we're watching more closely for it, and we're preparing for it, and I counsel them about it. So. Are your risks of having a lower risk pregnancy better if you have them when you're younger? Yes. Does that mean you shouldn't have babies when you're older? No. It's helpful to know what you're getting into if you make that choice. Exactly. I have a question about PCOS and endometriosis and Hashimoto's and how women can track if they have those um, syndromes or conditions or not because I've, I've, I've heard statistics but I don't actually know the numbers of women live a long time and go through multiple cycles in crazy, excruciating pain and not understanding why it's happening. You know, their moms are telling them, this is normal for our family, like this is just how it is, and they don't, they go undiagnosed. Um, so I'm wondering how women can be uh, more, um, I guess on top of that, to know this combination of symptoms and how that affects fertility in the long term. Yeah, so um, PCOS affects 8 to 15% of all reproductive age women. And it start, usually starts with skipping periods or young girls. And some of the young girls start to get a little more dark hair on their chin or on their tummy or between mm -hmm. the breasts. 
And so there's certain clues that it can pop up. And I do sometimes see patients that say, they say, I never got diagnosed, I don't know why. And it's because we're hoping a young girl, her period's gonna get better. Mm -hmm. So usually we give it at least two or three years once the periods start to see. And in that time, you're seeing your pediatrician and like we're, you know, in that zone. Mm -hmm. But then usually by the time they go to college and they realize, oh, my periods are really every 50 days and that's really unusual compared to my roommate, you know, they start to realize. We can check blood testosterone levels as well as um, do the ultrasound to look at the ovaries as well to just diagnose it. But it is one of those kind of funny things that goes, slips through the adolescent age into college and there's this like time zone where we're, everyone's hoping their periods are gonna get regular and they're not. And then sometimes people gain 15, for college, you know, 15 pounds and all that stuff, and we'll see these women and their hormones really get out of balance, and it's even more problem that comes through. Um, so, endometriosis is a tougher diagnosis because there isn't an obvious blood test for it. It's a surgical diagnosis. We can suspect it um, based on somebody's history that. The classic textbook symptoms of endometriosis are somebody that has really, really severe, severe cramping that begins anywhere from five to 10 days before the bleeding begins, like debilitating, affecting their quality of life. And then they get their period and typically the pain gets better because hormone levels have dropped. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's ongoing with their cycle. And that's that's the classic textbook, but we, we also, often call endometriosis the great masquerader because people can come in with any variety of symptoms or no symptoms. And I have patients that are undergoing fertility workup and they're like, I don't know why I'm not getting pregnant. And totally regular periods, five days of bleeding, no cramps, no pain with sex, and we do a diagnostic laparoscopy and they have just a pelvis full of cement old scar from horrible, horrible endometriosis. So, um, it's a, it's a more challenging diagnosis. Mm -hmm. The first line treatment for it in somebody who's not actively trying to get pregnant is birth control pills because the, the endometriotic implants are responding to hormones. And birth control pills are gonna suppress the amount of hormones that are in the system, suppress the stimulation of these implants that are leading to the inflammation and the pain, and periods get better. Mm -hmm. So I can have a patient who comes to me who's 22, 23, sexually active, having these horrible, horrible periods. I don't need to do surgery to diagnose her with endometriosis. I can put her on birth control pills, which will often both help the condition, help her periods, and give her the contraception she needs mm -hmm. without technically needing to diagnose her. So then um, she goes off to get pregnant, and then one day when she goes off to get pregnant, well, in fact, women who have really severe endometriosis diagnosed surgically, we recommend that they go on suppression, that they're on birth control pills until they are at the moment of ready to get pregnant. Because the easiest time that someone with endometriosis is going to have to get pregnant is in the first three months that they stop their birth control pill, because you haven't redeveloped all of the inflammation associated with the condition that is going to lead to the fertility problems, assuming they don't have tons of scar tissue and the aren't blocked or anything like that. Um, but in somebody with endometriosis, the easiest time that they're going to have to get pregnant naturally is going to be in the first three months that they stop their pregnancy. Wow. Same with PCOS, actually. Yes. Oh, right. about that. Just um, endometriosis, is that like a genetic thing if you're usually? 
So there's a genetic component to it. It's not that there's a gene that we can test for, but if lots of other women in a family have it, then the odds that another female member of the family has it are higher, but it's not like if your mom had it, for sure you're going to have it, you have a 50-50 chance of getting it. But statistically, the odds are higher. I guess, oh, sorry. Um, just for me, one more thing. Um, like, I had my period and they were very, very horrible, and I probably only had like maybe a year of periods before I went on birth control and been on that for like 11 years. So, is that possible that I just wouldn't know that I have it? Yeah, it's also possible that the long term consequences of endometriosis, which are severe scar tissue, tons of inflammation that are in the pelvis, you avoid it by actually being on birth control pills and suppressing that inflammation. And ultrasound can look pretty active, like visible endometriosis, if you wanted to look at it, but if you're not symptomatic, you should So I have endo, and I tried the birth control route, and I reacted off, it was terrible for me, so I'm off, but eventually I do want to get pregnant. What are, Am I going to have issues getting pregnant? In Canada, they're doing a study on vitamins, like natural things, but there's something called CoQ10 or ubiquinol, and it's been it's being studied now for endometriosis. There's some evidence that gluten-free diet may also decrease endometriosis, but that's not like textbook. And then also, um, if your periods really get severe, you can, the 10 days prior to the period, take natural progesterone, it's a tablet that you take, and that's different than birth control pills, and it doesn't cause like mood swings or anything like that. I got crazy, I was it's, it's a trick we use to tell the endo to pull down because it's like yin-yang, estrogen and progesterone, and so if you take progesterone, then the yin-yang kind of goes back. Okay. So that's a trick What's to it called? progesterone. Okay. And then the CoQ10. Um, and then there's a new medicine called Orlisa. It's, it's kind of a hot topic right now for fertility because we're not allowed to help people get pregnant for about like a year or more if they've taken it. And it's a tablet that only lasts for like 24 hours. So once a person stops, it's actually out of their system. So it's weird that the company won't let us help people get pregnant for a while after stopping it. They're trying to change that right now but the, because they don't have long-term safety on it. But basically, it's a tablet that tells your pituitary to not have those ovaries make estrogen, and so the endometriosis goes into a complete shutdown. So it works really amazingly well. I haven't given it because I'm helping people get pregnant, but, but this it's a new concept. And for young girls, like adolescent women, um, instead of giving them birth control pills and stuff like that, there's this new thing about trying this new medicine, so it's kind of neat. But there's non-birth control pills um, that can help with endometriosis too. But if I'm trying to get pregnant, am I going to have issues with endometriosis? Um, it's a complicated question because sometimes people have little symptoms of endo and they don't, and they have severe endometriosis, and some people have very little symptoms or more, a lot of symptoms, and they get pregnant. So okay. there is not a direct correlation. I, I can't predict if you're going to have trouble getting pregnant simply because you have a history of endometriosis. If you had 
terrible scar tissue that they found at the time of surgery and your fallopian tubes are kinked and you know everything is stuck, then I would suspect it'll probably be harder. But I have patients who have terrible endo who get pregnant without problems, and I have patients where we have no idea they have endo who can't seem to get pregnant, and then we discover it when we're doing the workup. Okay, well that's good. Yes. So I've had a terrible period since I've got my period to the point where I don't go to school or I can't go to work and I'm just in terrible pain. In college I got I had really basic tests with like um, cameras. I have nothing on my ovaries. I asked my doctor recently, revisiting this thing, like they're not getting any better. I was told as you get older your periods get easier and nothing's helping. She said exactly the same thing, like you don't know unless you do a surgery and her thing was, let's go on birth control. For me, every ounce of my body is just so resistant to it. I took it when I was in high school for like a month and I was borderline suicidal, it was terrible. I know in my heart of hearts and my gut that it's just not in alignment with my, like my body. Um, a couple things, one, I mean, could I get hormone testing? Like, am I am I shooting myself in the foot by really not doing all birth control? You know, I really would like to go the the natural way. Um, I, I mean, I really don't know what to do at this point. Like, I've changed my eating habits around um, my period. I've been trying to really eat with my cycle based off this book that Natalie suggested. That was it did help when I follow it to a certain extent. I mean, it's to the point where I, like I'm in tears and it's I have to take between 10 to 15 Tylenol a day. I mean, and I, then, then my stomach hurts. So my, I guess like, can I do hormone testing? Should I be on birth control? And my mom also said, because she's experienced period cramps, the women in my family have, after, after having babies, that they've pretty much subsided completely. Is that, is there any truth or validity to the pregnancy thing as well? So, did you ever have surgery to look for endometriosis? Not surgery. Okay. So, I don't know that you have it. Right. Um, a surgery not only diagnoses it, but if implants are seen, they can be treated. They can, um, again, depending on how deep and infiltrating it is, um, obvious implants can be a size. Now, implants can be microscopic, so a surgery doesn't cure it, but most women report that they have significant improvement in their quality of life, their pain, um, their periods for a period of about two years following surgery. So it's if, if you feel like it's affecting your quality of life, it's affecting your ability to go to work, and you're not interested in a birth control option, then at least getting a diagnosis, I think, would be appropriate and could potentially also give you some significant improvement in your symptoms. Um, I've also had patients do acupuncture for significant improvement in menstrual cramps and even irregular periods. Um, the other thing that I want to mention is um, ibuprofen type medicine, so Advil, Aleve, Motrin, <coughs> are actually better for cramps because they're not just pain painkillers, they're anti-inflammatory. The other trick that a lot of people don't realize with the, the ibuprofen type medicines is getting it into your system before the pain gets really bad actually is much better at preventing the pain from getting bad 
Um, catching up to bad weather is much more challenging than preventing it from getting that bad in the first place. So if your cycle is predictable enough that you know 10 days before your period your cramps begin, start taking Advil the day before. Just make sure you take it with food because it will start to upset your stomach if you take it on an empty stomach. But getting it into your system in advance of the pain works much, much better. Um, if you do have endometriosis, there, there's another, in addition to the Orlisa that's new, there's um, a shot that you can take for up to six months that also suppresses the hormones. Uh, it basically puts you into almost like a chemical menopause, but it turns everything off. And if you're having pain from the hormonal stimulation of the implants, it will turn that off. You use it, you can't use it for more than about six months because it can also affect your bone density. Uh, and if you're having the menopausal symptoms associated with it, like hot flashes, we can do some add-back, add low estrogen treatment to kind of minimize those symptoms. Um, but those are options in somebody that doesn't want birth control pills. Um, the other thing that I, I always mention about birth control pills and people who've had an experience like you, like you have, um, there are lots and lots of different birth control pills on the market. And the, the right pill or the wrong pill for somebody at the age of 17 may not be the right or wrong pill for them at the age of 25, probably not the right pill for them at the age of 35, and I'm sure not the right pill for them at the age of 42. We go through these hormonal milieu shifts, and um, there's dozens of different options out there. I do believe there's a perfect pill out there for everybody if we're patient enough to find it. But the other problem with getting started on birth control pills is it does take your body three months to get adjusted to any pill that we try. And I tell all my patients, don't love or hate any pill that you try for a minimum of three months. You can have some mild side effects that should resolve within that window. In my patients who have symptoms that aren't resolving, it's probably not the right pill for them when we try something else. And there's no magic formula for finding the perfect pill for somebody. We honestly just have to try them and see. So one month of one birth control pill five years ago may not mean that birth control pills wouldn't help you. I mean, I'm not pushing birth control pills. Um, I just want people to understand that one month where you felt horrible on one pill one time doesn't necessarily mean you might not do well on a different option. And then ultrasound can look at the ovaries for endometriosis too, yeah. and the uterus. And then there's a birth control pill that's kind of cool for people that have like side effects from the oral tablets called the Duva ring, and it's that's a plastic. That and Yaz, I guess. Yaz, it's common to hear that Yaz made like a lot of people a little out of sorts, so I never even prescribed that one, even though it actually helps block hair growth on, on the face and stuff like that, so it has a good to it, but then... <laughs> <laughs> I don't Lots of people do really it. well on it, and a small percentage of people yeah, do poor really side effects from it. And then also the pregnancy thing, is that, is there... Well, so severe pain with every period, there might be some inflammation that can affect future fertility, but we don't know for sure. But that's why it's good to check an AMH, which is a blood test, and get an ultrasound to check how the system looks. If the system looks normal and the AMH is good, then so far so good. But the cramps will also... I mean, oh, based oh, on oh after baby, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, because it's a partly an autoimmune. Um, so endometriosis might be that our period squirts out the fallopian tubes and 
kind of sits in the area and causes these really bad cramps and, and pain and inflammation. And after a pregnancy, there's this immune change that happens in people, and for some reason then their periods aren't as painful. Very, very common thing to hear. Yeah, it has a science to it, but it's a little confusing. Hey, may I ask this on, on that note, when I grew up, endometriosis was the nun's disease. Is that truthful or not? Because they didn't have sex and it, you know, none of that mattered and didn't get pregnant. Is that if any correlation to pregnancy reduce the length of it, it will it, it may reduce if they have endometriosis. Sorry, Nan. <laughs> but yeah, I forgot about that. That's true. So there might be something to that. And plus a lot of them don't take birth control pills. And women who take birth control pills may just hit in higher endometriosis. I have questions related to digestion. A, do IUDs within their geographical location affect issues such as chronic constipation, which is what I've heard, and B, do colonics affect reproductive or hormonal health in any way? So IUDs should not affect your gastrointestinal tract at all. At all. At all. It, I've heard it's like because it's around here, like it affects it in a big way. It should not. There's no correlation to it. It's in a completely separate place. If you're it like it's seeping through the tissues. The first, there's serum absorption for about two months of progesterone, which lowers your spasmodic ability for your colon to work. But after that, the local effect is only in the uterus and it doesn't go into your bloodstream. So I think maybe it does take like two months maybe to see a possible thing, but I don't think that's not like in a textbook that it causes constipation or anything. It's just a. The amount that gets into the serum that gets into your bloodstream is like for those two months is one twentieth of what you would get with one of these ultra-low-dose birth control pills. So it really shouldn't have much of a systemic effect. You know, if it's affecting cramping, like if you're talking about the um, copper-based IUD, which can make periods heavier and crampier, then that's a different scenario on where the cramps getting confused between gastrointestinal and uterine, but the hormones shouldn't affect the gastrointestinal tract. And colonics are always a bad idea. All colonics do is dehydrate you. Dehydrate? Dehydrate you. And can affect your electrolyte balance. I think we have like one or two more questions. Anyone else to get their question in? Anybody else? No? Good? <laughs> well, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much.